Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. So, new series, The Power of a Word. I can remember a couple of moments in my life where a word that was spoken to me has made... uh, Massive implications on my life. One in particular I can remember. Um, and I, I literally, I can remember sitting in the chair that I was in. I remember like the temperature of the room. I remember uh, nearly too scarily the details of what the person across the table was wearing. And everything about this moment, I remember it. Um, it's so vivid to me. And I remember hearing um, some words that shook me. Um, to say the least, things like, uh, I don't think you're a very good pastor. Um, I think you should probably just just be a worship leader. Um, and I don't, I don't think you're a very good leader either. Words, right? Just words. Uh, contrast that to a moment I can remember vividly in my backyard on a summer night with some friends uh, and a campfire and words that were spoken to me from people that knew me and who have traveled and journeyed with me and said words like, um, you are a good pastor and you are a good leader and um, just words, right? Uh, I remember a moment last year, actually, in this room next door, at a table right over there, um, when a group of people gave me this, and these are uh, words on a page. They're two-dimensional. They're black and white, Um, and this is one of the most meaningful things I've ever received in my entire life, Uh, and I will cherish it until the day I uh, head home. Words, just words. Uh, Words have power, unbelievable power to change, to transform, to to affect things in our lives. And so we want to spend some time on a few words. It's been said about words and language. uh, Handle them carefully, for words have more power than atom bombs. A woman named Pearl Strachan, or Strachan, that's a great name, by the way, Pearl Uh, Language is power, life, and the instrument of culture, the instrument of domination and liberation. A woman named Angela Carter. Uh, This one, unknown. Uh, the The language we use to communicate with one another is like a knife. In the hands of a careful and skilled surgeon, a knife can do great good, but in the hands of a careless or ignorant person, a knife can cause great harm, exactly as it is with words. Isn't that the truth? In the hands of a cared, skilled person, uh, words can be something that build and create. And in the hands of a careless person, they can destroy and tear down in a moment. So words, uh, again, two-dimensional. Right? If you think about words and language, uh, and, and the words on this page or a page that you've got, they're black and white, they are two-dimensional, they're really just lines and squiggles and dots and T's. They're markings on a page. From a, from a vocal perspective, they're these 
utterances, these guttural sounds that we make with our tongues and our lips and, and we, we communicate with them, but they're just sounds. And yet, in the same sense, or on the flip side of the coin, they can be these things that create life or destroy life. They're tricky. And, and, and I think the tricky thing about words, as we kind of open up this series, is that words are... Maybe you could say it this way. They're always approaching, but they're never reaching, right? They're always approaching something, but they're never actually reaching. They're always t- speaking of something, but never actually getting to what it is they speak of. Uh, let me illustrate this. If any math people out there, any math folks, a couple of you, like two, awesome. Um, <clears throat> we, we welcome you as well, uh, math people. Uh, in math, there's this an asymptote. All right, so I'll show you a picture of an asymptote. This is a real word. I'm not trying to get as close to a swear word as I can without saying it. Uh, this is an asymptote, <clears throat> and an asymptote in geometry, from, a, from a, um, uh, a reasonable perspective, like when we, when we look at this, we think, well, eventually this curve will intersect with that line. But from a mathematical perspective, an asymptote is the idea that this curve is always reaching, it's always coming closer to, but it's never actually touching the line. It's always approaching it. It's always divisible by itself again and again and again and again, infinitely, right? It's, as- it's an asymptote. Uh, language is asymptotic in nature, right? Language is always reaching for something. It's always seeking to describe something, but it's never actually getting to. It's always approaching but never reaching. Any Harry Potter fans? Harry Potter, Harry Potter. Yeah, a couple of you. Uh, Harry Potter, uh, you remember the invisibility cloak in Harry Potter, right? He puts on this cloak and you can't see Harry. All you can see is his face um, because the cloak doesn't cover his head. But uh, the way that you see Harry then is is you you, you, you throw water or blow some sort of a, a powder and what happens? It outlines the form of Harry Potter, right? So what you see is an outline. It, it defines the thing, but the cloak isn't the thing itself. A word is like a cloak. We drape it over something, the real, right? If we were going to get philosophical, this is Plato's f- idea of forms. That somewhere there exists the realness or the real form of, ca- of a candle, and uh, this is just a representation of that, right? That's Plato's idea. Words are a bit platonic in that sense. We drape a word over an idea or a concept, and it gives it form. It fills it out. It gives it definition and shape. But it never actually gets to the thing behind the thing. Now, Words are critical, right? They're two-dimensional, they're, and yet they have this, they're just scribbles on a page, they're just things that come out of our mouth, and yet they have the power to transform. What gives meaning is a question we should probably discuss. So if a word, if, 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 if you look at this piece of paper, and there's a word there, what gives that word meaning, I would argue, context and intent. So the context in which a word is used and the intent it is used with give it meaning. For example, if I were to say to you, dog, you, the word dog has no meaning unless you have seen the four-legged furry animal that barks and is a man's best friend, at which point you connect the word or the sound that I just made, dog, to this thing, okay? The context in which you hear the word gives the word meaning. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, this is an interesting I- introduction, Micah, and I'm not quite sure where you're headed yet. That's okay, that's fine. I- I've got you right where I want you, actually. 
in Christianity, in theology, there are all kinds of words that mean a great deal. For example, forgiveness, compassion, justice. These are words, and they have a great deal of meaning in this story, or as it relates to this story. Insofar as you understand what's be, or, or insofar as you understand what's behind the word, the word will have meaning. If I could say that differently, the word grace we're going to be talking about today. Insofar as you understand the idea behind the word grace, you will, the word grace will have meaning to you. So I may say grace, and you may think of all kinds of different things. They may or may not correspond to the real idea of grace itself, at which point you may think that's a meaningful word, and you may not. The point of this whole series is we're going to try to unpack some of these words, these words that have great meaning and great value, and you hear all of the time, but why? Why do they have meaning? Why do they have value? What do they look like? And my wife, I love her to death. She's the greatest thing since that, that's happened to me in my life. Many of you can attest to this. She says, these words, it's philosophical banter back and forth like, my kids will wake me up tomorrow at 6.30 and they'll jump on my bed and wake me and I, will, I want them to and I will be struggling to love them and, and care for them and nurture them today. Like, what does grace have to do with that? You know, like, what is, wh- talk about, you know, compassion, okay? Um, my neighbor drives me bonkers. What does it have to do with that? So what we hope to do in this series is to say, these words have great meaning and value. But what exactly, how do they play out? Can we land this thing? Can we get them a little more concrete, a little more enfleshed, so to speak? So that's what we hope to do in this series. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you will. We will start here. This is Paul, and he writes a lot of letters in the New Testament. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, that's a great name, Pearl and Sosthenes, if we have any more kids, there we go. <laughs> to the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you. Turn to Ephesians, if you will. A couple of books to the right. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you. From God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ and Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you. Colossians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, blah, 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 you know what's coming. Grace. Paul starts nearly every one of his letters with grace and peace. Over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about four words. I'm going to talk about grace and peace. Our good friend Ben, actually, next week will be giving a few uh, brief provocations on love we've talked about, which I'm more excited about than you. Really excited about that. And then Lane will be uh, talking about hope in week four. So this morning we're going to tackle grace. Are you with me? Are you ready? You don't sound like it. Okay. One of you. Great. Um, Grace. The word grace in the original language, which would have been Greek for Paul, is the word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. And if we were to define the word grace, or if we were to try to define the word grace, 
Um, often we connect it to salvation and what Jesus has done on the cross for us, which is actually a step beyond defining grace. Grace in the original language has this idea, this connotation. It's gift or blessing, favor or kindness. So grace is about gift, it's about kindness, it's about favor, and it's about blessing with no expectation of return. Grace, fundamentally, if you were to boil it down, fundamentally is gift. Now, today I want to see if we can get to what does grace do? What does it look like? What do we do with grace? And if grace does anything, grace sets you free. Grace sets you free to own all of the ways that you don't measure up. Have you ever played hide-and-seek with a kid before? Have you guys ever... And especially, like, little, little ones, like three, like, they can walk, they can talk, but they don't quite get the nuances of life and the complexities of life. So hide-and-seek with a youngster is just a trip. Man, it's a crack-up. Because you do the thing, you know, cover your eyes, and they all scamper around, and you can hear the little pitter-patter of feet, like, ten feet from you. And, and uh, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ready or not, here I come. And immediately you, op- you open your eyes and one of two things happens. They're either standing right in front of you, and if they're not, when you say, ready or not, here I come, they jump out from where they were and say, here I am. <laughs> what is it about a kid that they, when you play hide and seek, they hide in plain sight, and, you, and, and when you're ready to come and find them, they jump out. What is it about a child that they want to be found? They want to be seen like this intrinsic. You don't have to teach them. It just wells up inside of them. They just want to be known and seen. They don't want to hide. Something happens in the human condition, in the human heart, that one of our earliest desires and longings turns into one of our greatest fears that we might be found that we might be exposed. One of our worst fears, aside from public speaking and spiders, (laughs) arachnophobia, for those that don't remember the film. I never saw that one. I just don't get that. Why would you go and see a film that would scare you? I don't know. Anyways, one of our worst fears, aside from public speaking, is the idea that we would be exposed, that we would be found out, the fear of being found out for who you really, really, really are. Right? The things that you don't want anyone to know. The fear that that might be exposed. The fear that if you offer your true identity, the, the realness of who you are, that it might be rejected. It might be held at bay, it might be held at a distance. This fear that we might be found out. And so we live in fear. We live scared. We live in shame because we can't live up to the expectations. We fall short. And grace is the moment when you are exposed and found out. And grace says, I know. And I love you. Grace is the moment when you are absolutely found out, when the part of you you want no one to know about is seen, and grace says, I know. I already know that about you. And I still want you. I still accept you. I still extend relationship to you. Grace is that moment. 
And grace unlocks something in us because the fear of being found out and the, and, and the fear of being, or the, the, the idea that we live in this place where we, we don't give all of ourselves, grace sets you free to own the, own the things that you, that you fall short on, own the ways that you don't measure up, and really live from a true sense of who you are. Broken and imperfect. Uh, uh, sinful and beautiful. It allows you, it unlocks this opportunity, this place to live from a true sense of who you really are. Grace sets you free. There's this, uh, Goodwill Hunting is one of my favorite movies. There's this spot in Goodwill Hunting where Sean and Will, the two main characters, are sitting down on a bench, and it's like this taster's choice moment between men, he says. And uh, he says essentially this. Like, if you don't know anything about beauty, if I asked you about beauty, you'd probably... Uh, you know, quote me some Shakespearean sonnet, but you've never seen the inside of the Sistine Chapel. You don't know what it smells like. And if I asked you to tell me about love, you'd probably quote Shakespeare. But you've never been in the moment when she looks across a crowded room at you and you know that she could level you and wreck you because she knows it all. And she stays. You don't know that moment. What the film writers didn't tell you was they just introduced you to grace. When you are known for all of you and still loved, grace sets you free to live from your truest sense of who you are, to not hide, to not be scared. If grace sets you free, in the same breath, grace enslaves you, right? Grace is this, this light, buoyant thing that just lets you, li- it's, like, it's like a bird is let out of the cage, and yet in the same paradoxical moment, grace is something that enslaves you, because I don't think any of us have any trouble believing that there are things in this world, including parts of me, that are not as they should be, which assumes that there is an ought, that there, are, there is a, a way things should be. And if grace not only frees you from all the ways you fall short, it shines a light and calls into being all of the things that could be and should be about you and about me. Grace reminds us where we've come from. Grace asks the loving questions of, is this really the best way for you? I mean, really, is this the way you should be relating? Is this, grace asks those leading questions of, is is there something better for you? Is the way you're living now, the decision you're making with this person or that person or that job, is that really what is best? Grace asks that kind of question. And grace reminds us where you have come from. I mean, think about this. The scriptures tell us that you and I were created in the image of God, the creator of the universe, and we bear the thumbprint, the finger... Well, that's a bad metaphor because God's not fingers, anthropomorphic language, we bear the fingerprint of the creator himself. Grace reminds you that this is where you've come from, that in the midst of your brokenness, there is something, there is the essence, the, the existential real of you actually is connected to the creator of the universe. Uh, the, the, the Hasidic tradition talks about the divine spark that is in each of you. Grace reminds you that that is present if the, if the world that we live in holds up a mirror and says, you're pathetic. Like, these are all of the ways you don't measure up. These are all of the ways that you are flawed. These are all of the ways that you 
mess it up, that you fall short. If that's the world we live in, grace picks up a brush and begins to paint something beautiful and says, this is who you were made to be. Grace picks up a guitar and writes a melody and says, this is what you were made to be. Grace, and, and this, is, this is the thing. When we've seen that, when we get a glimpse of that, when we get just the door cracked open and we get a, a, maybe even the smallest of views of that, how can we ever go back? How can we ever want? And so grace enslaves you. It enraptures you. When you have seen it, when grace opens a door and says, this is what's possible for you. Not, not here's all the ways you fall short, not here's all the ways you're a pathetic loser, but this is who God made you to be. Grace opens a door and invites you into that. And when we've seen that, we're responsible to it because it's who we were made to be. The other night, Laura and I, uh, I, I was working here. I was actually hanging these speakers, and so I left a little bit later than normal, and I usually call home and say, hey, I'm on my way. So I leave the joke joint. I'm going home, and uh, I call Laura. Hey, I'm on my way, and she's like, you'll never guess who called. And I'm like, you're right, who? <laughs> she says, for the sake of the story, we'll call them the Johnsons. The Johnsons called. I'm like, no way, the Johnsons called. Us. Oh, my gosh. She's like, I'm right in the middle of making beef stroganoff. I've got beans. I've got, you know, kids are into green beans. We've got fruit. i got everything. But the Johnsons called. They asked if we wanted to come over for pizza. Should we go? And if you know me, that's not really actually a question. <laughs> Should we go to the party? Should we go be with friends? Should we do something spontaneous and scrap the plans and go on an adventure? Yes, yes, yes. We'll go to the Johnsons. We're going to go. <laughs> so I'm like, do you want to meet me there? Well, no, no, no. I think that'll be too much. Okay, get the kids ready. I'll be home in 10 minutes. We'll get in the car. We'll go to the Johnsons. So we, I get home, and it's like a whirlwind. It's like, wow, the Johnsons called. You know, we're going out. We're going to a party. We're they're inviting us over for dinner. And that's just great when somebody invites you over for dinner. I mean, gosh, I love that. Don't feel like you have to invite me over for dinner, though. <laughs> so we get in the minivan. We're driving down there. And, of course, you know, we've got dinner half ready, right? We're going to have pizza. She, Laura's like, should we bring the beans? I'm like, bring the beans, come on. Should we bring the fruit? Bring the fruit, put it in a bag. You know, I'm a home brewer, so I'm like, get the beer, bring the wine, we're bringing it all. Uh, and of course, the Witham girls, they eat dinner to get to dessert, so dessert has already been planned. So I'm like, bring the dessert, bring it all, right? So we show up at the, at the Johnson's to have pizza. They've invited us over for dinner, and we are just like laden with stuff. We got booze, we got the, we got... You know, dessert, we got the vegetables, we got the fruit. We bring it in, we start unloading it, and you can imagine the look on Mrs. Johnson's face, right? She's like, oh, this is awkward. We've invited you over for dinner, and you brought your kitchen. And she starts like, oh, you guys shouldn't have brought that. Oh, you shouldn't have done this. And oh, you know, and then she, you know, kind of self-deprecation begins. You know, oh, we invite you guys over for dinner, but you bring this and you bring this. And at one point I stop and I go, listen, you're the only one keeping score here. Because grace doesn't keep score. Grace is gift with, ex with no expectation of return. Now, 
Derrida at this point would say that what I'm doing, what I did is no longer gift because it's not anonymous. It has to be done in secret. But that's a whole nother deal. And I, I'm like, listen, Grace, you're the only one keeping score here. You are the only one keeping score. And I said it multiple times. Because Grace doesn't keep score. Now, this is counterintuitive to us, right? We live in a world that's ruled by the scoreboard. I mean, who was watching football last night? Who's going to watch football today? I mean, you remember as a kid, if you were an athlete, people would taunt you, and what would you say? Scoreboard, right? You know, just look at the scoreboard, scoreboard, because that tells the real story, who's winning and who's losing here. And I'm not a dad who advocates that all the kids should get a, a, a trophy, friends. I, you know, everybody participates. Everybody gets a trophy. I, that's not me. I'm not that kind of a dad. You know, <laughs> if you lace them up, you get a trophy. We live in a world that uh, there are winners and there are losers, and competition matters, okay? It's a broken world. It's a broken system, but this is the world that we live in. So in some senses, competition matters. There are, will be winners. There will be losers. So not everybody gets a trophy. Some people lose. Fine. But if you follow Jesus, there is this razor's edge paradox that we live in a world that has values and we can't deny that they exist, but they don't necessarily rule us. And so there are winners and losers and there is a scoreboard in one sense and yet in another This is not the economy of grace. Grace does not keep score. It's a gift with no expectation of return. Now, more than anything else that we may talk about today, I would say this is the most important. Grace, like any other word, fill in the blank, love, hope, peace, compassion, justice, forgiveness, Grace, like any other word, needs a body. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. And as you do, let me ask you this question. How do you know what grace is? I mean, if I ask you, what's grace? You may put some words together in a sentence, and that might be called a definition, that you would explain grace. But how do you know what grace is? Let me ask you differently. How do you come to a place where you believe grace is true. Grace is real. How do you, what is it that brings you to a place where you believe it? I would argue you experience it. Grace, like any other word, needs a body. And this, my friends, is the profundity, the beauty and mystery and absolutely amazing part of the gospel story. That God, the creator, gets this, and this is always how God works. This is how God has worked from the beginning, and this is how God continues to work in the world. Philippians chapter 2. Someone, something, enfleshes it How you know grace is real is that someone embodied it. Somebody picked up the idea and lived it in real time, three-dimensional, flesh and blood, concrete reality. That is how you know grace is real. 
and the word became flesh. Sound familiar to anyone? Philippians 2 says, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. By being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is how we know. Right? First John, we sing this song here. This is how we know what love is. Grace, like any other word, needs a body. You know, you, you know and understand a word. You believe a word is true or real because it's been embodied and enfleshed and made concrete and tangible to you by a person. I'll close with this. What do we do with grace? What do we do with this word, this idea? When it happens, what do we do with it? Receive it, give it a face, I would say. Receive it and give it a face. The, the very nature of the definition of the word, grace, gift, to you, for you, with no expectation of return, by the very nature of the definition, means grace is something that we all desperately need and none of us can get. Does anybody need grace? That moment when you are exposed for who you are and still loved and still invited into relationship, does anyone here need grace? The moment when the worst of you is brought into the light and you are not shunned, you are not pushed away, you are not sent to the edge, the outside of in, but you are welcomed and embraced and loved and said, we want you. Does anyone need grace? And the absolutely tricky spot of this is all need grace and none of us can get it. You can't get it. You can't work it for it. You can't, you can't, uh, you can't buy it. You, your ability to, res, to, to experience grace is directly connected to your ability to receive gift. To receive. With open hands to receive. This is the story of the gospel. That God, in the fullness of time, embodied love, truth, grace in the person of Jesus and offers it to you. Does anyone need grace? And to the church, to those who have said yes and who have received this grace and this forgiveness, the invitation is to now give it a face in the world, in real time, with your family and your friends and your coworkers and the people that you love and may even dislike strongly. To give it a face. What if, what if, man, what if people that know you and are connected to you, when they were asked, what is grace? you came to mind. Your face 
your action. For me, grace looks like my wife. When I was in college, I was a golfer. I played competitive golf all through high school and college. And I had a terrible temper. Shocking, I know. I'm a bit competitive. And I did not learn how to control my temper. I was an RA on my college campus. I was the worship leader in our chapel services at our Christian university. And uh, in a moment, at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, I lost my cool in front of a five-star retired general of the Air Force. It's not a good spot to do that, just for the record. And this guy comes storming up to my coach and just gives this guy an earful like only a five-star retired general of the Air Force could do. At which point, all that came right back to me <laughs> through my coach, and he said these words, Micah, there is no spot for you on this team next year. You're done. I got kicked off my college golf team. You talk about exposed. You talk about a beam of light shining down on all of the ways you do not measure up, and you have failed. And I spent two hours silently, the whole van, silent. I mean, how awkward would that be, right? Your teammates are like, wow, that just happened. Two hours, silently, all the way back. And when I got out of the van, I just lost it. Just weeping. And I found Laura, who was at that time my girlfriend. And I told her what happened. And I remember, I'm, I remember it. I had a hood on, covering my shame, not wanting to look anyone in the eye. And on a cool, crisp night in Colorado, she grabbed me by the face with tears and snot running down my face. And she said, I love you. And she just hugged me. And I wept. That, for me, is grace. I will never forget it. I won't forget the face. I won't forget the moment. Because grace, like every other word, needs a body. What if the church of Jesus embodied and was the faces of grace, forgiveness, love, mercy? To be continued, right? Let's pray. God, we want... We come here on Sundays and we gather and we want to hear from you. We want to experience you. We want a corporate experience and, ex and expression of the living God when we are here. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray in this moment right now that you would, as only you could, fill out for us grace that we would experience through one another the relationships that exist. What grace means. I pray that we would experience in real time that grace sets us free to own and be everything that you have called us to be in our brokenness, 
and in our beauty that grace would set us free that it would that it would shackle us bind us to the glory that you have created us for the the just shimmering hope that exists and what you've made us to be i pray that grace would set us free and draw us into, pull us to who you've made us to be in Christ. God, may we be a community that doesn't keep score, that doesn't tick all the boxes, that doesn't check things and tally them up. But I pray, God, that we would be a community that opens its hands and its arms and welcomes. God, I pray that by your spirit, you would empower us to be a group of people who embody grace. And for those here this morning, God, who need grace, maybe for the first time, to be fully exposed for who they are and loved, forgiven, accepted, welcomed. God, I pray that that would happen. May this moment not pass by. God, we want to be near you, to experience you, and uh, we're so grateful for your word, for your church, which makes it come alive, gives it a face. We love you, so grateful for who you are, what you've done. Find us www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.